This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, bail has been abolished for some offenses in New York State, but people held on $1 bail find it hard to get out of jail. A black professor, says Emmett Till and Trayvon Martin, both died on the altar of white womanhood. And Mumia Abu-Jamal makes some comparisons between 21st century poverty and the Great Depression. But first, most people think of environmental damage as having to do with pollution of the air and water. But Willie Wright, a professor of geography and African-American studies at Florida State University in Tallahassee, says the landscape can also be damaged by using it to commit or conceal acts of violence against black people. Professor Wright wrote an article for a radical journal on geography. In this article, what I'm doing is I'm looking at environmental justice and environmental racism and wanting to kind of tweak the way we become to understand what counts as environmental racism. So traditionally, one thinks of environmental racism as the illegal and immoral dumping of waste or siting of waste industries, right? Maybe it's a landfill or a wastewater transfer station and people of color, predominantly black working class communities. And in this article, I'm wanting, I am arguing that anti-black violence as it occurs, particularly in the United States, is also a form of environmental racism. That's right, because segregation didn't just exist as a law. It was enforced through vicious violence, lynching, mob violence. Right, exactly right. And that mob violence was meant to, like we said, that mob violence and that structural violence, right, coming down from the federal level onto our local levels, was meant to keep Black people not just out of predominantly white and all white suburbs, right, but to keep black communities contained in these ever deteriorating urban centers. And so the way I'm thinking through environmental racism in this piece is suggesting that that too is a form of environmental racism, right? Because it enacts a form of slow and immediate violence, whether that be of the destruction, the long-term destruction of the communities or the immediate violence of the police upon black communities but it also deteriorates our landscapes, right? The communities that our children and we grow up in, right? It also enacts a violence upon that environment. And the Black presence, wherever that is, changes the nature of the landscape. For example, the big city used to be seen and written about in literature as a vibrant place full of ideas, motion, energy. But when Black people predominate, it becomes a dark and dangerous place. Yes, and so in the article, I'm working through this framework known as Black Geography. So there's this subfield growing in the discipline of geographies known as Black Geographies that we attribute to Lake Clyde Woods and Dr. Catherine McKittrick, where they argue that Black spaces, right, the places where Black people proliferate 
are considered to be aspatial, right? Aspatial lacking of value, whether that's exchange value or cultural value. And yet they argue even within that kind of context, which is the context created by the structure of white supremacy, black people create a sense of place, right? Black people create forms of home that exist outside what we may traditionally think as a place of value. And so through that analytic, I'm arguing that artists have shown us for decades, right, that the environment has been used to assault black communities. So I, I referenced to Billie Holiday and how Billie Holiday invokes the notion of strange fruit to articulate this intersection of black, black, black men and women and this intersection with, say, trees, wooded areas, waterways, right, and to show that how trees and, and foot wooded areas have been used to assault black communities and how waterways have been used to kind of cover up those assaults, which we think to the infamous assassination of Emmett Till, right? How Emmett Till's, the water, right? Or, or actual waterway was used to kind of cover up that assault and murder. In terms of waterways, the most famous site of racial injustice in the U.S. is probably Flint, Michigan. But you quote Laura Polito as speaking of Flint as a place of racially devalued surplus space, and that thinking of Flint that way gets more to the root of the problem. Right, it's a surplus place that I begin to argue in some of my other work, right, is the surplus spaces that Black communities often predominate in different parts of the U.S. that eventually become this, this, these places of value, right? But that is a conversation that leads us to talk about gentrification. But what Laura Polito is saying, that a key reason why we saw and continue to see the Flint water crisis, because it's predominantly Black city that has been disinvested and devalued of and seen of as a surplus space that is no longer needed to invest in, even at the level of clean water. And we begin to understand gentrification while thinking in terms of racially devalued surplus spaces, because once the Black folks are gone, the devaluation of that space ceases as well. Right. There's a, a sister who's in the geography department at UC Berkeley who just wrote a book. Sister Dr. Brandy Thompson Summers wrote a book who just came out with a book on D.C., kind of arguing similarly about black cultural spaces in D.C. and how this new political economic governance in D.C. dictates which space, which black spaces will be of value, right, uh, and continue to exist. And so in the article, I'm really trying to get us to shift the way in which we think about environmental racism. And if we do so, then there becomes clear intersections with, say, the environmental movement slash environmental racism movement and the movement for black lives. So this article came, I started thinking about this because of the work that organizations like Black Youth Project 100 were doing because of Black Lives Matter. It was their work that was shifting my mind and my kind of optic towards what environmental racism could be. Right. In fact, you say that you began on this intellectual path in 2014 at an environmental justice conference in North Carolina. Yes. Yeah, so there's an amazing organization, the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network, that has been fighting a really good fight in North Carolina for decades now. And so I was inspired by organizers like Naima Muhammad and the late Dr. Steve Wing, right, that have been fighting hog capos, confined animal feeding operations in eastern North Carolina for many, many years. 
And at their annual summit, Convergence usually talks about the dumping of waste, right? The siding of CAFOs, but there had yet to be a conversation around anti-Black violence as anti-Black violence was becoming very visible through social media and other forms. And I started to kind of want to bring these two issues that are impacting rural and Black communities together in this article. The dumping of waste, like the hog waste in North Carolina, you call that the racism, environmental racism from above. But what's the below? Right. It's also a kind of play on terms I'm pulling from James Baldwin, right? And James Baldwin was really actually explicit that the disinvestment in what I say the ghettoization of Black communities was an environmental justice and environmental racism issue. And so for me, the below is what we traditionally understand to be environmental racism, dumping of toxins in waterways, improper uh, mitigation of waste. The above is right the opposite end of that. The above is the actual anti-Black violence that takes place in the form of like structural disinvestment of Black communities in the form of police brutality, right? In the form of uh, vigilante violence against Black men, women, and children. And I'm arguing that these are parallels, just as Black communities are having to deal with the dumping waste in our environments. We're having to deal with being seen as waste ourselves, right, above ground. Yes, and in that order, it seems to say that one comes before the other. That is, there has to be slavery, and it's, of course, built-in violence against Black folks before you can have these racially encoded ecologies. Right. I mean, this is clearly, and I'm arguing, in this, and others make this argument, right, that this is just one manifestation of the afterlife of slavery in the United States. Police brutality is just one manifestation of that afterlife. What do you think that this kind of view of environmental racism from above and below, how should it impact upon activism in environmentalism and the priorities that activists and people set? Well, there's a lot of mobilization now around climate change, whether that's uh, at the policy level, at the protest level, and the actual kind of institutional level as well. I think viewing environmental racism as not just our air is being polluted, our water is being polluted, will make sure, one, that many voices that have been bringing this issue to the fore, right, aren't ignored as we begin to focus more on climate change, as we, as governments begin to think about how they're going to funnel, shift their budgets to address issues of climate change. I think it also will bring these two movements together, clearly bringing the environmental and environmental justice movement together. But I think even more importantly, bringing the environmental movement together with movement for black lives being clear that police brutality, structural disinvestment of Black communities is an environmental issue that needs to be on the table just as much as issues of the melting of polar ice caps. You seem to be critiquing many in the movement for putting too much emphasis, too much trust in the state as an arbiter in this, a state that daily kills Black folks and imprisons us and, well, the whole litany of what the state does to Black people. It's a loving critique, because as I stated, my even coming to even think about environmental racism came through being, you know, at the feet of Naima Muhammad and these other organizers, Gary Grant and others in North Carolina. So if anything, it's wanting to make sure we continue to push forward and how we 
come to conceptualize and think of environments for racism. Because I understand that when it comes to communities that are dealing with hog cafos, right, the polluting of their land, one of the only ways are often that they can get any kind of remediation is going to the state and getting and pushing the state to enforce more regulation on these corporate entities. So when it comes to the, the day-to-day fight for environmental justice, there are many ways, there are ways in which neighbor, neighborhoods and organizations have little choice but to go through the state, but also wanting us to kind of not see that as the end goal. How can we look beyond the, the state as well? And you also, and you quote Polito here again, think that folks should see environmental racism as a product of white privilege and of capitalism and how white privilege operates under capitalism. Right. Polito is saying that, you know, the kind of pristine, quote unquote, pristine white spaces that we associate with, say, potentially the suburbs, we're only able to manifest, and she's not alone in saying this, Kianga Yamatas Taylor is saying this in Race for Profit, right? These spaces are only able to, to come to fruition through the intentional disinvestment or what I call these anti-Black austerity policies against Black communities, right? Whether that's redlining or, you know, the formation of white gangs in L.A., right, to keep the racial divide in the West Coast. So these spaces of the value, whether that's economic value or, you know, environmental value for that matter, are only able to proliferate because of structural disinvestment in black and brown communities. And what does this mean in terms of black folks becoming aggressively pro-environment? The environmental movement is still characterized by its own mostly whiteness. Right. I would like to say that black folk are aggressively pushing for environmental changes, right? We have, we see these organizations, well, there are organizations that exist. It's a matter of whether or not they're given the visibility that they require, that they need, right? And even acknowledging that even at the neighborhood level, Black residents, regardless of whether or not they may be owners or renting in their neighborhoods, have a sense of value, a sense of place where we are. And it's a matter of whether or not that's being elevated to the, like our TV screens, right, and elevated to these organizations that are being heavily funded. But I do believe that bringing these environmental organizations together with, say, organizations, Movement for Black Lives, is a key way in which to kind of elevate the issues that are impacting Black rural and urban communities. And to think of Black empowerment in cities or in rural areas as part of environmentalism, rather than segregating the movement itself, the environmental movement, by thinking of it only as open spaces, grand canyons, and lakes and rivers. Exactly, right. Thinking of our urban communities as an environment, as an ecosystem in and of itself, that is just as important and significant as some faraway stream that we may never even visit. So I think one thing that the Black radical tradition has always shown that not only are Black matters spatial matters, but Black matters are very comprehensive matters. So though we may be standing up against police brutality, and that stand goes along with equal access to adequate housing, right? Viable public schools, employment, right? Black matters are always comprehensive matters. They're never single issue. That was Professor Willie Wright speaking from Florida State University in Tallahassee. New York is one of several states that have abolished cash bail, which has been used to keep poor people locked up before they've even been convicted of a crime. 
but it's often difficult to get out of jail, even if the bail is set at only one dollar. Amanda Lawson is a student at New York University and a co-founder of the Dollar Bail Brigade, whose volunteers have helped hundreds to navigate the jail bureaucracy. Anyone can be held in jail on just a dollar bail. Any time that someone is arrested in New York City, specifically if you're arrested for more than one charge, and in New York or in any criminal system in the United States where you're a black person, where you're a poor person, it's really easy to rack up more than one charge. Specifically, I'd point to resisting arrest, disorderly conduct, all of those kind of dog whistle charges that are really easy for people to accumulate. If you have two charges in New York City and, for instance, one of those charges is more minor, maybe hopping a turnstile, maybe resisting arrest, they will set a bail amount on both charges. But if they wanted to release you for your minor charge, they can't, in their system as it's designed, release you on one charge and set bail on another. So what New York City does is set a dollar bail on that minor charge. And what that does is count the time served on your other charge so that when you appear before the judge, when your case is going to be resolved, they can say, my client will accept a plea of time served. And then the courts know that that time is 20 days, six days, et cetera. So dollar bail is just a really unnecessarily complicated, unnecessarily monetary accounting mechanism to track time served for people who are being held pretrial particularly when they have more than one case. But thinking about who this demographic of people is, people are, we're talking about anyone who can be arrested in New York City. These are all people who are legally innocent. Most often in New York, like once you actually go to trial, which not a lot of people do, people are found to be legally and actually innocent of these charges. So that's one thing I highlight is the innocence of the population. But in the same breath, I want to emphasize that no one deserves to be held in jail on any amount of bail. The Dollar Bail Brigade is a really firmly abolitionist organization. We believe money bail is inherently wrong in any amount for any person, regardless of charge. When we post a dollar bail for someone, we don't look at what charge they were accused of because we operate from the understanding that people are entitled to a presumption of innocence, and that's not being served in our system currently. A dollar bail seems like it's just nominal, a kind of formality, but the system continues to make it actually very difficult. Tell us about your dollar bail brigade. The dollar bail brigade has highlighted to me how every aspect of the criminal punishment system is unnecessarily cruel and administratively cruel in ways that maybe people don't understand until they are acquainted with it, either by being directly impacted by the system or one way that the Dollar Bail Brigade is able to help do some political education is by roping in people who don't have any involvement in the system, maybe just generally care about incarceration or bail and bring them up close to the system and see what families are experiencing every day in the system. So it is really ridiculous. And I point to that ridiculousness to say that This is what the system is like. This is what a system that fundamentally doesn't care about black and brown people. This is the end results that will happen. It's something that's meant to help keep track of time served ends up leaving people regularly incarcerated for just a dollar bail. And 
there are workarounds around this that the system could do. Allegedly, there's a notification system where when your bail is just $1, the Department of Corrections on their website says that they notify people. We've posted bail for over 300 people in the last three years, so we know that that doesn't happen. And it can be extremely difficult to try to post bail. It's a punitive process. You go to the bail room to try to post bail for someone. There's no bathrooms in the bail room. There's not even proper seating. It's not wheelchair accessible. No air conditioner, no heating. It's a really awful room that is reflective of the attitude that the system has towards people. And then it can take as long as three hours, eight hours. It's even taken us multiple days, up to 49 hours, just to post a dollar bail for someone because the Department of Corrections uses a fax machine in between their jails. And that just shows that they don't really prioritize getting people out of the system. It's all about getting people in, even when it's the most ridiculous example of an innocent person in jail for weeks on just a dollar. Well, it must be very difficult because your dollar bail brigade has 600 volunteers. You say that you've posted bail for 300, but you also say you've only freed 78. Right. So the Nation article that you're referring to, we have grown since then, which is really exciting. So currently today we're at almost 1,200 volunteers and we posted bail for over 300 people. And that's just been a result of the spread and even the nationwide conversation on bail reform and people are looking to get involved. And we've done a lot of recruiting with students. I helped start the Dollar Bail Brigade when I was a sophomore at NYU. So that was what our base was for a while. And then we spread out to volunteers in the city. So those are our current numbers. These low bails are very new. Most people are accustomed to having to use a bail bonds person who gets a hefty fee and you have to go through them before you even get into the bureaucracy. But anybody can bail out a person. You just have to show up with the money. Right. And that's part of what I think is the beauty and when I can get really pessimistic about where we are today, I am re-energized by the thought that there are 1,100 people in New York who are committed to, even when it's a really ugly draining process, to getting random people out of jail that they don't know, they'll never meet, they don't know what their charges are, but they're committed to helping out their fellow neighbors. And thinking about other bail-out actions that we're a part of, that have historically been a part of, particularly in the Black community, like back to the time of enslavement, thinking about pulling together funds to help people purchase their freedom. It's really sick and disgusting that we're still in that situation where most of the people in jail are black and brown, and we have to band together as a community outside of the walls to get people out. But as long as we live in that system, that's something that I'm really committed to doing. And it's really reassuring that a lot of other people are as well. And one other point on your point of anyone can post a bail, just a really Another example of how this system is just so awful and needlessly cruel, under New York State insurance law, a person can actually only post bail for, depending on your interpretation, two or three people a month without getting registered as a charitable bail bonds person. So we're all volunteers. We're not a 501c3. We're just a group of people helping out our neighbors. And the process of getting registered is really long and even expensive. It's onerous. So we keep under that rule in order to not 
the Dollar Bail Brigade be prosecuted or to incur any charges for our volunteers. So we have to have a large group of people in order to constantly be posting bail for people once someone posts bail for two people and then they can't post bail again for 30 days. Ah, that explains the numbers. You write about a Queens, New York man who stayed in jail for five months under just $2 bail. Yeah, that was one example that that person's case preceded the time of the dollar bail brigade. And that was around whenever I started getting personally interested in bail as an issue. I was interested in the Bronx Freedom Funds work, which was the first charitable bail bonds organization, charitable bail fund in the state of New York. And they were posting bail for people. There was this case of this person who unfortunately had to sit in a jail cell for five months for just a couple dollars. And I think with his case, he even had the amount of cash in his wallet. But it's a really sick part of the bail process that you can't actually post bail with the cash that you have on you at the time of arrest. They won't allow you to access your property in order to do so. The only way that you could post your own bail is if you have commissary money, which one requires someone putting money in your commissary for you. And two, you have to know that you're entitled to that. You have to have the know-how to ask a correction officer for the form to post your own bail. And three, you have to have a correction officer willing to help you. And sometimes COs just say that's not allowed or otherwise lie to people not allow them to get out of jail. So that's the circumstances that we're in. Five months is an incredibly long time. And, you know, there's no kind of reparative part of the system where after they find out that they held you in jail for five months and a dollar, they don't award you any money. It's just, sorry, and you go about your life. And that is, of course, long enough. Even a day or two in jail is long enough for you to lose your job, housing, lose your children, lose your place in a treatment center, but five months is just unfathomable and awful. And cases similar to that happen all too frequently. Activists have had lots of interaction with the New York City Council over this issue, but you write in your article that even the chairperson of the relevant council committee seemed to have no idea how difficult getting bailed out in New York City is. Absolutely. We have actors of the system, our city council people, our representatives who aren't aware of how awful the money bail system is. And in this moment where New York passed historic reforms on January 1st, ending bail for most people, but not all people, it's really surprising that when we're talking about money bail, so many people don't understand the reality of it. Like, bail is a mechanism to help people return back to their court dates. So it's not the case that ending bail is setting criminals out on the streets. Like ending bail is just a common sense thing that we need to do. So we're always trying to raise awareness. We have tried in the past to help empower people to similar to our volunteers to go to a jail and post bail themselves. The Bronx Freedom Fund has done stuff like that, taking council members to the jail. And people are always surprised. And this is the system that they govern. So it is definitely a problem and we want everyone's eyes to be on bail and on the criminal punishment system because it's also what we owe our incarcerated siblings, family members, comrades. They exist in the system. They're tortured every day. We have to do our best to amplify the violence that they experience and do whatever acts of solidarity that we can, including posting bail. 
And there's still a lot of resistance to dollar bail institutionally from within the system and from politicians. Absolutely. We, the opposition to bail reform is something that is steeped in the decades of socialization that we receive about who's in jails, the criminalization of black people, of homeless people, queer, disabled people. We are terrified of what's behind the jail walls without even understanding who is behind it. But what people, particularly communities who are affected by incarceration, know is that we owe it to those people who are no different than us on the outside to be there for them. Something that I believe as a prison abolitionist have seen in the work that I do is that violence isn't something that just happens or is perpetuated by a certain number of people. Violence is something that anyone can come into just by surviving situations of domestic violence, for example. So we have to change how we look at people who do commit crime. And that means thinking differently about people who commit serious violence on other people. Um, Jails are just not the way to deal with that. And money bail in particular is very separate from that conversation. It is a way to get people back to their court dates. So the fear-mongering that we're seeing is the same narratives of fear that got us into the crisis of mass incarceration. And for every bad story that the tabloids choose to focus on, there are thousands of success stories of people who are going back to their communities, going back to their jobs, and getting to be a part of the community while they wait for their day in court. Well, certainly your volunteers are doing a service to the incarcerated, but I would expect that these 1,100 volunteers are learning a lot about the actual nature of mass incarceration in the United States. Absolutely. Every volunteer that we send, we collect information on their experience. So we are in a unique position of having tried to post bail, I would say at least 500 times because it often takes more than one trip in order to post bail for someone. You'll get turned away because of warrants or holds or other reasons. So we have a lot of data about what it's like to post bail, what the jail system looks like on a daily basis. And people always express surprise, shock, anger, even people who are volunteering in other ways. Like I think people who post bail are also plugged into other movements. Like some of our volunteers, volunteer with the prep project or volunteer on writers to teach students who are incarcerated. So even people who are really plugged in are shocked at the nature of the bail system, how legal and normal it is for people to be tortured in our communities just behind a jail cell. So we are definitely really familiar with this problem of criminalization and are committed to ending it. And that didn't stop on January 1st. New York still has bail, so we are mobilizing right now, trying to call our representatives, defend the bail reform progress that we made, and continue to push for full abolition to really free our communities. Bail reform is always brought up next to the conversation of public safety and of violence, but I think what people can leave out of the conversation is that this system of money bill is violence. And we have to talk about the systemic widespread violence that is mass incarceration that devastates generations of black people and poor people. So we have to look at the system as a failure because it is, it just keeps harming us. We can't cage our way to freedom. So what we really need for safety is an investment in our community and in our services that people need. 
So I would just highlight that, that our current status quo of incarceration, of bail, is violent. And we have to address that head on. That was Amanda Lawson speaking from New York City. Fifty-seven years transpired between the murder of Emmett Till by white racists in Mississippi and the killing of Trayvon Martin by George Zinnerman in Florida. But Angela Onwachi, a professor at Boston University School of Law, says both black teenagers were killed for much the same reasons. Professor Onwachi wrote a paper for the Du Bois Review titled From Emmett Till to Trayvon Martin, The Persistence of White Womanhood and the Preservation of White Manhood. There are a lot of commonalities between the cases from everything from both Emmett Till and Trayvon Martin were children. Both of them were in spaces that they weren't used to being in. Emmett Till was from Chicago and and found himself in uh, smaller towns in Mississippi. Trayvon Martin was from Miami, in particular Miami Gardens, which was really an African-American town with African-American leaders and city council and a mayor. And he found himself in Sanford, Florida, which had its own very unique history. It's famous for being a town in which Jackie Robinson was run out of that town not only once, but twice. Their mothers were both testifying in terms of being able to identify. Of course, in the Till case, it revolved all around her being able to testify that that was her son's body that had been pulled out of the Tallahatchie River. And Trayvon Martin's case, it was the mom who was testifying about the voice that she heard screaming for help. So there are a lot of similarities. I won't go through all of them. And one of the unexplored similarities is a similarity in terms of how white womanhood and the protection of white womanhood is preserved in these cases. As you point out, the Emmett Till case is widely known as being a case that is about that in part, right? The, the allegation is that Emmett Till whistled at Carolyn Bryant, and then she said at trial that he had come on to her and accosted her, assaulted her, all this, you know, touched her, all these things. And of course, now we know from the work of one journalist that she has retracted that and said that she lied, that he hadn't touched her, he hadn't assaulted her, any of those things. And so that case was very much about what was happening during the pre-civil rights era, where white women would often make allegations of rape that were false, and then that would result in the lynchings of Black men, and in the case of Emma Till, of a young Black boy. In the Trayvon Martin case, George Zimmerman, there's nothing at all about white womanhood that's really obvious on its face. And the way that you see white womanhood being protected in the case of Trayvon Martin is through the testimony in particular of one woman named Olivia Bertillon, who was a woman who lived in the retreat at Twin Lakes, which is the neighborhood that George Zimmerman lived in, the neighborhood that Trayvon Martin was a guest in when he was at the home of Brandy Green, who was his father's then-girlfriend. And it comes in through her testimony. It's surprising her testimony gets in. And what she testifies to, basically, is that two years earlier, she had been robbed at home when she was alone with her baby in the house and that there were two black teenagers. And the testimony was apparently being put in so that we could understand George Zimmerman's state of mind because George Zimmerman came to her house after she had been robbed and someone broke into her house. 
and to tell why he viewed Trayvon Martin the way he did. There was no connection. There was no allegation that Trayvon Martin was one of those young boys. There was no allegation that he looked like them. The only thing that they had in common is that they were African-American teenagers. And so there was really no reason to bring it in. It was two years prior. And so to talk about how that spoke to his mindset when he saw Trayvon Martin walking in the neighborhood doesn't really get us much unless you're indirectly trying to get the story out that here is George Zimmerman who is standing in the place even though he is part Latino of a white male protector of white womanhood and I'm happy to talk more and more about the actual testimony and things of that nature. Yes, of course. George Zimmerman styled himself as a neighborhood watch. And in communities all across the country, those kinds of so-called neighborhood watches are really black watches. That is, watching out for black folks and all the predation that they might do to all white people, but especially white women. Absolutely. Right. And, 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 you know, one of the things that you often see people talk about is, you know, there's some particular online fora. So, for example, there's something called Next Door Neighbor, and I have friends who are on it and talk about the various things that they see from their neighbors who will identify somebody as suspicious because they're African-American, because they're brown, and they are perceived as being out of place in those spaces or, you know, I had a friend who talked about her neighborhood she lived in. Uh, this is not our next door neighbor, but they have a, a neighborhood newspaper and they had to send out something in the newspaper that said, stop calling the police on your neighbor, an African-American man who is simply taking a jog in the neighborhood, right? <laughs> and so I think Trayvon Martin finds himself also in this space when George Zimmerman sees him. George Zimmerman claims to know everyone in the neighborhood and claims to have known who all belong there. But when residents of color, particularly African-American residents, are talked about, not all of them, many of them didn't know George Zimmerman. So he was, when he was talking about his neighborhood, he wasn't thinking about Black people as being a part of that neighborhood, or maybe with a couple of exceptions. You quote in your piece Mamie Till Mobley, who was the mother of Emmett Till, and she wondered after an all-white male jury acquitted the killers of her son if the presence of a woman on the jury might have changed that. But of course, in George Zimmerman's trial in 2012, that jury was all female, and it didn't change anything. Yes, right. So in Emmett Till's trial, it's an all-white male jury, um, and they come back basically in less than 70 minutes and acquit the murderers. Even though all of them believe that they murdered Emmett Till, they participated in the murder of Emmett Till, they come back with an acquittal, and one of them jokes famously that, you know, they could have done it in an even shorter period of time if they hadn't taken a break to have some Cokes. Maybe Till Mobley's Bible, as you point out, she says, you know, she wonders if that made a difference, right? That a, a white woman who had been a mother might have thought differently, might have had questions, might have looked at her son in the same way that she looked at her son. And then she says, well, chances are not, essentially. Um, but she's still raising the questions. Chances are not, because a white woman was, of course, at the middle of all this. And we're talking about Carolyn Bryant, who was the one who made the allegations against Emma Till. And what I part of what I say is that she gets an indirect answer. We see in the Trayvon Martin case, 
where it's all, uh, it's an all-woman jury. There's all white women and one woman of color, one woman who's Latinx, Latina, on um, the jury, who was who really felt like she was sort of the outcast and treated like an outcast jury. And she was the one person who was sort of the holdout. She was the one person who initially wanted a murder conviction and then wanted some kind of conviction and had been fighting for it and had sort of been just sort of over time, I think, if you read um, the book, forget the journalist who wrote it, she felt sort of beaten down by the way she was treated. For example, one of the women was allowed to like see her dog over time and she had just had a baby. She had a number of children and she just she had just had a baby and she wasn't allowed to see her one week old baby because the baby, even though the baby couldn't talk, was a human being, right? And so she talks about the various ways and she was sort of made to feel less than and then the ways in which some people talked about the laws if they knew it. And so she just felt like not equipped to sort of push for the verdict that she wanted. But basically, despite the fact that you have a number of women on the case, you have mothers who were on the jury, we get the same verdict in the Trayvon Martin case. And there are all kinds of reasons why you might think the verdict could have gone differently if a first aggressor instruction had been there, if they had seen Trayvon Martin as someone's child. In fact, one of the women, the only woman to give interviews after the fact, you could see, you know, she has a lot of sympathy for George. And she talks about George Zimmerman as someone who was simply trying to protect the neighborhood. And and she, in fact, refers back to Olivia Bertillon's testimony as one of the things that she found most convincing and most moving. As uh, Mark Garrigo said, it was actually sort of a brilliant strategy because it sort of revived and revealed these images, uh, highly, highly stereotypical images of African-American men. And again, evokes images of the men who were supposed to protect white women in these neighborhoods. Studies of jury performance and voting histories show that white women are not that different from white men in their racial attitudes. Absolutely. And we see this on a wide variety of issues from everything from, you know, immigration issues, from everything from affirmative action on a broad range of issues, right? And I think it's because the experiences of white women, even though certainly white women have experiences in, in terms of experiencing sexism that are common with women of color, intersectional discrimination makes the experiences of women of color quite different from white women. And also um, the commonality of race and all the privileges that come with race and all the assumptions in our society that come with being white in our society, white women experience all of those things. And, you know, in many ways benefit from privileges that even accord to white men in society. And I suppose the lesson from the study of these two trials, 1955 and 2012, actually shows the persistence of white privilege and white supremacist feelings and attitude towards protecting white women are just part of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. This is a persistence. I mean, one of the things that's going on in this case is that it's also very much a protection of whiteness. Right. And so in both cases, in the Emmett Till case, you've got J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant, who are two men who are part of like the working class poor and the working poor in Mississippi and what they have is they have their whiteness, right? And their whiteness is what puts them above black people. And so they are clinging on 
to what W.E.B. Du Bois calls the psychological wages of whiteness in a time in which Brown versus Board of Education has been handed down and a time in which you see there are the beginnings of change in terms of racial progress in the country. And this is a time of hysteria for many whites, particularly poor and working class whites, who fear losing their place in society. And so you see it as J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant are coming to get Emma Till out of the house. You see they're really disturbed that one of the very few privileges that they have as white men in society, that all black people, regardless of age, have to call them sir, ma'am, mister, is not followed by Emmett Till. Emmett Till is from Chicago. He's not used to having to refer to all white people as sir, mister, and so on, regardless of who they are. And so when they come into the house to get him out, he's not saying mister, sir, all those things. And J.W. Milam says to him, if you don't say that to me, I'm going to blow off your head. And one of the things that they really say they hate about Emmett Till is that he viewed himself as being as good as they are. And, and um, J.W. Milan says that's what actually pulled him to go ahead and pull the trigger to shoot him in the head in the end after they've beaten him for many, many, many hours. And George Zimmerman is sort of in a similar spot, right? George Zimmerman comes from a middle-class family, but George Zimmerman himself is a renter in a neighborhood that is changing, right? The downturn in the economy has happened. Homes that were once $250,000 are now, the value of them is below $100,000 in some cases. People are worried now because there are more foreclosures, there are more empty homes. There are people that have started to break into homes. And people are begin to regulate their space racially even more. The neighborhood watch is formed. George Zimmerman is a renter in a neighborhood that's really hostile to renters. He's also part Latino in a neighborhood that's becoming increasingly hostile to people of color who are moving into the neighborhood. And so here, George Zimmerman is also clinging on to the status that allows him to be part of the in-group, right, in this neighborhood. He's clinging on to what provides him of what we would say were the privileges and benefits that J.W. Milam and Maury Bryant held in a society that was completely built on racism and, and structured by racism. So they're all those same incentives operating also in the George Zimmerman case as well. So this case is also very much about the protection of whiteness. Um, the protection of white space is going on too, right? People who view their neighborhood as a good neighborhood, as a neighborhood that was white. And there are all kinds of studies that show that whites prefer to live in neighborhoods that are essentially white with a few people of color. And there's a tipping point at which it becomes undesirable. And that diversity is sort of viewed as a turnoff for neighborhoods for many whites. So sociological studies over and over have shown this. And so this is part of also what's operating here. And there's some anxiety involved here for George Zimmerman as a white man. And so if Emmett Till's mother, who was speaking from a time deep in Jim Crow, came back today to observe the trial and exoneration of George Zimmerman, she'd have to conclude that it wasn't all just about Jim Crow and just about rednecks and just about Mississippi, but really a tale of white supremacy. Yes, it's a tale of white supremacy. It's a tale of the complexities of racism. Unlike J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant, we have no reason to think other than, than you know, claims about what he said 
uh, claims about maybe whether he said certain slurs or not, that George Zimmerman is a rabid racist, that he thinks all black people are less than or, you know, in the same way that J.W. Milam and Lord Bryant did. But he does grow up in a country where all those messages are sent and taught explicitly and implicitly. And he, like many people, including all people, including people of color, have internalized those images, internalized those ideas. So you don't have to be in a Jim Crow era for these kinds of things to happen. In fact, one of the things that I believe this is like, in some ways, this is sort of a new form of a lynching. A lot of these killings of unarmed African-Americans, unarmed, non-threatening and non-threatening African-Americans, very much in the same way rooted in racial stereotypes, very much rooted in the notion that African-Americans are inferior to whites. And whether that is conscious action, whether that's based on conscious thought or non-conscious thought, in both cases, the effects are the same and equally harmful and equally frightening for African-Americans. And those kinds of conducts are legitimized ultimately by juries like Zimmerman's jury. Yes, legitimized by juries, grand juries, by prosecutors, uh, legitimized by juries that, that vote to acquit a defendant, legitimized by grand juries that vote not to indict someone who's shot an unarmed African or non-threatening African-American. They're legitimized by prosecutors who refuse to file charges when they have the authority to file charges in such cases. And so over and over again, just like in a pre-civil rights era, African-Americans are told that the justice system does not work for them in the same way that it works for whites and that African-Americans do not and will not receive the same protections that whites receive under the law. That essentially for someone who is shot in that way to get a conviction, if we look at the couple, two cases in which convictions have occurred, it has been because the defendant was essentially perfect, (laughs) right? And the ways in which African-Americans who are shot by police or quasi-police like neighborhood watchmen are demonized and criminalized in the media and by those who are seeking to defend police officers or quasi-police officers who have shot unarmed or non-threatening African-Americans. It's really um, sad and disturbing, right? You even see that kind of demonization happening in a case like the Tamir Rice case, where the kid is only 12 years old. Now, there wasn't as much demonization of him, but certainly of his parents. And then that was, for me, the most one of the most shocking moments, that here where parents have lost a 12-year-old child and that people then went after them in a way they knew they couldn't go after a 12-year-old without really seeming like they were inhumane. They really went after the parents, which was just really, truly shocking and surprising and really disappointing. Some people say you shouldn't compare these two cases because, you know, 1955 case that was where it was obviously rooted in racism in 2012 and 2013, when Trayvon Martin was shot in 2012 and when George Zimmerman was acquitted in 2013, those are different circumstances. We live in a different time. And I won't deny the changes, the positive changes that have happened in our society, but what happens with racism is that racism morphs over time. And so... I believe that what we see now happening over and over again are sort of current transformations of an old form of racism. The other thing I would say is that while we might look back at the Emmett Till case now and obviously obviously say, oh, that was obviously a tragedy, 
what happened in that case, right? What happened to Emmett Till and the acquittal of his two of his murderers. It wasn't that clear to people at the time in the same way that people are contesting whether George Zimmerman should have been tried for murder or manslaughter and the ways in which people are defending George Zimmerman now. People were defending Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam. People were defending those killers of Emmett Till. And so I think that something doesn't have to occur in exactly the same form for racism to still be present. And certainly one of the things we should ask ourselves is, would Trayvon Martin be alive today if he were white? And I think absolutely yes. Or would George Zimmerman have been convicted of murder if Trayvon Martin were white? I mean, one of the reasons why George Zimmerman notices and decides to pursue Trayvon Martin is because he's black and because of all the images and non-conscious bias studies show us over and over again that people associate criminality with blackness. And they do that for all kinds of reasons. Those images are put into our heads over and over and over again. The other thing is, you know, when you think about Trayvon Martin, I always ask people, I say, imagine the exact opposite. There's a white teenager He's walking in a neighborhood where he is a guest. He's staying overnight at one of the residents' homes in that neighborhood. And a strange black man is sitting in an SUV and looking at him strangely. And he tells his friend he's talking to on the phone, there's a strange black man looking at me on the phone. His friend says, oh, my gosh, I'm worried for you. And then eventually the friend says, run, and he starts to run. And this strange black man starts to chase this white teenager and ultimately tackles him and shoots him and kills him. If your visceral response was different, just in switching those to the race of the victim and the person who pulled the trigger, the killer here, and I think most people did, right? Most people, when they're being honest, it is. That I think that we have to have more and more honest conversations about these types of cases. That was Professor Angela Onwachi speaking from Boston. Mumia Abu-Jamal, the nation's best-known political prisoner, sees parallels between low-wage workers today and during the Great Depression. He files this report for Prison Radio. Several years ago, I read a masterful and remarkable book titled Hammer and Ho by the acclaimed historian. Robin Kelly. It's a fascinating history of black workers in the 1930s working in Alabama who tried to organize unions and get a few pennies more for their labor, often agricultural work. The landowners, angry that their labor wanted more pay, unleashed really terrorizing repression, state violence against these people, often accomplished with the open aid of groups like the Ku Klux Klan. I thought of that dismal history when I heard just recently of cops beating, clubbing, and breaking bones of UCAL graduate students who are only striking to get the ability to pay their rent. 
This is especially problematic due to increasing high rents in California. Obviously, one can't equate the grotesque racist violence visited upon black workers during the 30s. Yet what unites these two periods is the presence of state violence against people truly trying to live better lives. In their case, trying to pay rent. A movement is growing in Cali. A movement that may grow to touch all of us. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.